Good morning. Good to see you this morning. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Colossians 1, verse 18. Suspended evening services, annual business meeting. That's this Wednesday at 7 p.m. Everybody ready? I'm telling you, if you haven't been to one, it's fun. Annual business meeting, if you're responsible for a report, you've got a couple of days to get that ready. So we'll see you at 7. Prayer meeting uh, Wednesday at 7 as well. I mean, that'll be kind of in lieu of. Uh, Andrea's number, thank you for your giving. And envelopes, again, if you have not taken yours, I don't know what you're doing because it's... February. <laughs> anyway, um, not in your bulletin. Um, they're wrapping up the Winter Blast camp today, so um, you might be prayerful about that. I'm sure you've heard Mercy had a grand mall this morning at camp, so she's um, recovering uh, from that. And I think there was some other illness, and I'm not, not sure what all that was about, but... Um, there's always stuff associated with camp, so remember them in prayer. Anything else? Yeah. Um, I don't think... Oh, I was supposed to talk about that. There's some stuff on the wall over here. Um, if, you, if you don't know, there's a proposal to do a, a portico or carport uh, in the back of the church, and that may or may not include covering this sidewalk, which is problematic. You can tell this morning it was a bunch of ice that couldn't be removed there, um, so that roof would cover that. Um, there's some other ideas that might um, change slightly, but that's the general idea of it. So get a look at that, and then we'll probably be discussing that on Wednesday um, somewhat. So uh, great proposal. We've been talking about that for more than 10 years, I know, probably, probably 20 years, but... So we'll talk about that. Thanks, Ed, for the reminder. All right. Scripture reading this morning. Isaiah 43, read 10 through 12, and then hop to 45 and read 21 through 25.
Let's stand and ask the Lord to bless us as we worship together. Dale, can I ask you to? Dale, yeah. Take your Trinity hymnal this morning and turn to number 130-130 in the red.
in. 67, is that correct? 67 in the brown. Sorry, his was the first hand he had up before he even sat down. 67 in the brown. Do we have a reason for this one this morning? We are blessed, absolutely, and I love this hymn. <clears throat> 67 in the brown.
Scripture reading is in Colossians, the first chapter, and we'll be reading verse 13 through 23, 1832 in the Pew Bible. Do you know about go eat potato chips? Does anybody know about that? So, because I'm, I, ha- I have some weaknesses <laughs> in my mind, probably when we were about 16, Laura said, no, it's go eat potato chips. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And every time I open the scriptures to go to one of those four books, I think of that. So, thank you. Dear wife, for that help. <laughs> Stand with us. <clears throat> Colossians 1, starting at verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought, brought, wait a minute, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom... We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the, the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Pray that the Lord would bless his scripture. Will you take your red hymnal again, the red trinity, and turn to number 141, 141 in the red. (coughs) Excuse me.
I like my little stool. <laughs> I can even spin around on it, you know. <laughs> oh, don't get old. <laughs> well, we take whatever the Lord sends us, right? It's his providence. We're looking at Colossians 1 today, verses 13 and following. In our series, Unto You a Savior Has Been Born, which was started at Christmas time, we considered in our last message God's royal rule in salvation. Mankind is hopelessly dead towards God, dead in trespasses and sins, the Bible says, Ephesians 2 verse 1. The reality of spiritual death is everywhere with us. It's, we're talking about being dead towards God while we're physically animated. You know, that's part of the problem that we have in dealing with people with the gospel. They say, I'm not dead. I can do anything I want to do. And in the physical realm, that is very true. In the spiritual realms, that's not true. They're dead with these six characteristics. Number one, they can be religious but not transformed spiritually. Pharisees are a good example of that in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. They were fastidious about their religious duties. But Jesus said they were full of dead man's bones. They were like sepulchers, full of dead man's bones. Did you know you could be very religious and full of dead man's bones spiritually? Secondly, they nitpicked on minor spiritual issues, but they missed the greater good. See, what do I mean by that? Well, in tithing, let's just take that as an example. They tithed right down to 10% of their garden herbs. Jesus said they did that. But he also went on to say that they neglected the more weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They got the herb part, the minor part, correct. But the weightier matters they let slide. Thirdly, they knew the law of God, but not the God of the law. The law became a club to criticize others, but not to obey themselves. Fourthly, the pursuit of the world and pleasures thereof with disdain for righteousness. Fifthly, they did not understand spiritual truth, but ridiculed it as being foolish and unimportant. And number six, they were able to see the sin of others while being blind to their own sin. Jesus called them blind guides leading the blind. That's the interpretation of what these men were all about. We saw the necessity of God's resurrection power. The dead are dead without feeling it. It's not like they know this. They're dead while being very animated. And that's what they would say. Well, I'm, you know, I go to church every Sunday. I sing the hymns. I read the scriptures. I know how to pray. You know, they, they bring out all of their spiritual exercises and not having the reality. And number two, they come alive without effecting it. Eternal life is God's gift to his people. They didn't make themselves alive, even if they talk about faith and mercy and grace. Those things come to God, come to them by God's grace. They're not produced within. 
Well, today's study considers Jesus Christ as both the creator and the savior. And as we come, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Father, help us to see the spiritual truths of what you have accomplished and what you continue to accomplish in the area of salvation. We don't save ourselves. I know that that's a novel concept for the world because they think salvation is of themselves. That it's up to each individual to get right with God on their own. And and when they see their religious works and activities as contributory to their salvation, they have missed the boat completely. I pray you will help us to understand the beauty of Christ as the creator and savior, the one that works in our heart and makes us child of, children of God. Bless and honor your word today. Be with those that are out ill today. In Christ's name, amen. We're looking at the savior as Jesus as the Savior and as the Creator, together, bound to, they are bound together. Firstly, in the outline, I noted that Jesus, with regard to Adam, it was Jesus' perfect work. In theology, we sometimes departmentalize the work of the Trinity and ascribe different roles and functions to the three persons of the Godhead. For example... We see creation, and I'm thinking here of the creation of the earth, the planets, the stars, the vegetable kingdom, the animal kingdom, the creation of man as the crowning creation. We see the rule of the universe, and all of this we attribute to God the Father. That's where we've been taught. Secondly, offering up of an atoning sacrifice sufficient to appease the wrath of God for Adam's sin. And that of his posterity, we attribute that to Jesus, God's son. And we say, well, that's the cross work. Thirdly, the application of that atoning work, the creation of a new heart in men, the conviction of sin, the granting of repentance and faith, we attribute that to the Holy Spirit. So this is what we do in theology, but these departmentalizations are a convenient way for us to sort out the role that each person of the Godhead played in human experience. But I have to say that these same departmentalizations are patently false. They're false. And they are false because the endeavor to pigeonhole the work of the Trinity into neatly packaged job descriptions that allow no room for the crossover functionality of the Godhead, which Jesus taught. Let me give you some examples. These are the words of Jesus. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. John 14, verse 10. So they see, Jesus sees this as an ongoing partnership between him and the Father. Or in John 10, verse 38. 
talking about the works that he did. If I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Or in John 5, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. John 5, verse 19. Or do we remember the conversation that Jesus had with Philip? If you really knew me, Jesus is speaking here. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well, Philip. From now on you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord... Uh, Show us the Father, and and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, (laughs) Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. John 14, verses 7 and following. For the Apostle Paul put it this way, For in Christ, in Christ, all The fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Colossians 2, verse 9 and 10. No more is this so clearly apparent than in the creation account. Our text this morning, Colossians 1, 15 and following, tells us of Jesus... He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the and the firstborn from among the dead. And he is before all things. That he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Colossians 1, 15 and following. I think you're all familiar with the Genesis account of creation. You could probably almost say it by rote. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Now the earth was form, formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, 
and he called the darkness night. And there was evening and morning the first day, Genesis 1, 1 to 5. But are you as familiar with John's interpretation of Genesis? John's interpretation of the creation account. Here it is. Let me rephrase it for you. It's in John 1, chapter 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. John 1, 1 1-5. You can see he's interpreting the Genesis account of creation. And he's saying, do you know that it's Jesus, the living word, that created all these things? Now this is more, it is more, I say, than John's opinion on how creation came about. He is giving us the official interpretation of the Genesis account, which allows for but one conclusion, and that is that at creation's dawn, Jesus was the active agent through whom the universe came into existence. Six times in the creation account, Moses records it with these words. And God said, let there be light, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate the water from the water, let the waters be gathered in one place, let dry ground appear, on and on ago, God said, God said, God said, God said, Jesus was that said word, you understand, through whom all things were made, and apart from whom nothing was made, John 1, verse 3. He was there. He is that word that's being spoken. This was no less true concerning the creation of Adam. Of Jesus, says, says in him was life, and that life was the light of men, John 1 verse 4. It's kind of reminiscent of Moses' account. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being, Genesis 2 verse 7. Adam's lungs were first inflated with Jesus' breath as the creator. What is more, that intimate detail of creation expressed by Moses So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1.27. What image would that be, seeing that even the child's catechism defines God the Father in these terms, God is a spirit and has not a body like man? Catechism question number nine and the answer. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. God at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds. 
who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1, verse 1 and following. Such an image of God present at Eden explains Moses' account that Adam and Eve could recognize the sound of the Lord God as he walked in the garden at the cool of the day. Genesis 3, verse 8. Spirit beings, spirit beings make no sound at all when they move from one location to another. But the embodied Christ does make a sound. He makes a sound. He was there. These manifestations of God in bodily form in the Old Testament are known in theology as Christophanies. Chris, Christ. Epiphanies are appearances of Christ. It's the Greek word for appearances. So appearances of Christ. But they're pre-existing appearances. That is to say, before his birth. And by the way, there are many of them in the Old Testament. The mysterious visitor to Abraham under the oaks of Mamre is a Christophany. God coming to Abraham, Christ coming to Abraham and saying, you know, I'm going to give you a marvelous offspring. And from your offspring is going to be one that's blessed, will bless the whole world. The God-man that Jacob wrestled with until dawn. God's a spirit. He's not wrestling with a spirit. He's wrestling with Christ, the incarnate Christ. The revelation of to Manoah's wife of the coming birth of Samson. Again, what did she see? A phantom? No. An angel of the Lord? Yeah, the angel of the Lord, who in Scripture is referencing Christ. Yet none is more significant and more dramatic than this account of creation in Genesis. Why? Because it indicates that the one who created Adam and breathed into his body of lifeless clay, the one who placed him in the garden, the one who formed Eve by the extraction of Adam's rib and brought her to him, thus providing him with a lover and a wife as well as a paradise kingdom to enjoy, was none other than Jesus Christ. Adam was Jesus' perfect handiwork in a pristine world that was free from sin and decay. So when Adam sinned, he sinned against Christ. He sinned against the Creator Christ. Fall of Adam at the prompting of Satan is reminiscent of the devil's own rebellion against Christ due to his inordinate Ambition to be like God. You can read it in the biblical accounts. Let me read some of it. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. 
You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the mountain heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. A lot of boasting here, right? (laughs) I will, I will, I will, I will. And God said, uh, will you? No, you will not. Let me read it in God's words. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. And those who see you stare at you and wonder, is this the one, the man who shook the earth And made the kingdoms tremble. They ponder your fate. Isaiah 14 verse 12. Ezekiel adds more details. Ezekiel writes. This is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. The garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless In your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. There's mystery here. Through your widespread trade you were filled with violence and you sinned. And so I drove you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among those fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. Ezekiel 28, verse 12 and following. We're looking here by inspiration at the origin of the evil one and how he became the devil, the anointed cherub, the cherished cherub of God, is thrown to the earth in judgment because of his pride. Notice here that God says of this anointed cherub that he was blameless on the day he was, here's the word, and the day he was created. Created. Satan was, he is, a created being who had visions of grandeur. A creature attempting a coup against God so that he might become the most high. His pride got the best of him. He could not abide the reality that Jesus was the bright and morning star. Revelation twenty two sixteen indicates. 
a star that outshined his own illumination. So when he came to Adam and Eve in the garden, he again postulated his own fantasy as plausible for them. You will not surely die, he told them. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3, verse 4 and 5. That's the devil's sin of pride and his desire to outbest Christ Jesus, God's son. It was proposed to Adam and Eve. The creature asserting himself above his creator. And brethren, pride was the first sin and it is the continuing sin. And it will be the final sin that damns everybody to hell. I'm great. I'm good. I'm better than you. I know how to please God. The creature asserting himself above the creator. We are on the fast track to perdition, riding on the schemes of the evil one, and all because he could not abide his position as a creature under the authority of Christ, his creator. How damning and sinister human pride is. It's subtle, yeah, but it's deadly. It feeds you the lie that you have to answer to no one. Pride does that. It puffs you up and convinces you that every man is master of his own destiny. We hear that from people of the world all the time. You need not believe in God's warning. You need not heed the warning. Don't eat from a certain tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. You're convinced that Satan is right. That you can become your own God. Making your own decisions on what is right. What's wrong. What you may do. What you don't want to do. Adam sinned against Christ, his creator. And you and I do the same thing in pride, the pride of our hearts. So Christ has every right to do to you and to do to me as he did with Satan. But you are brought down to the grave, Christ says, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? Isaiah 14, verse 16. The Apostle John describes Satan's fate in worse terms than that. Let me read his words. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. 
And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what what they had done, as recorded in those books. The sea gave up its dead that were in it. Death and hell gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and hates were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. Revelation 20, verse 10 and following. Great curse as a result of sin. But remember that Christ is also the Savior, not just the Creator. And the curse is not the end. Thank God. When Adam and Eve sinned, immediately, immediately, they died spiritually towards God. They sold Jesus out for less than 30 pieces of silver. They believed the liar. They bought into his proud desire to become God. And the curses followed. We read, to the woman God said, I will greatly increase your pains In childbirth, with pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree from which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Genesis 3, verse 16 and following. As we come to the New Testament, Paul explains the universal sweep of Adam's sin, saying, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, And death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. By the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. Through the disobedience of that one man, the many were made sinners. Sin reigned in death. Romans 5, verse 12 and following. Now that is a sweeping consequence of Adam's sin. There's not a person on earth, dead or living, who is not a recipient of Adam's evil nature and therefore of Adam's curse. Unlike the evolutionists of our day, who believe in survival of the fittest and the survivor is often on top of the food chain because of his ability to kill his rival. God indicates that death had no part in the original creation. Rather, death came. Death came, says Christ, to all men through Adam's sin. I would say it this way. Adam was... Uh, excuse me, Eden was not a dog-eat-dog jungle. 
It wasn't. It was a beautiful place. Pristine paradise where man and beast lived in perfect harmony without fear, without danger. But sin made ugly what God had made beautiful. Sin always does this, by the way. It distorts and ruins what could be and would be if God's righteousness reigned supreme. We are moving towards that in and through the power of Christ the Creator. Peter to the Jews told them, Repent! Turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must reign in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Acts 3, verse 19 and following. What I'm saying is that restoration is coming. It is coming even sooner from our vantage point in history. But for now, the curse remains. Paul explains, the creation waits in eager anticipation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Romans 8, verse 19 and following. It's not only all of creation that's groaning, we're groaning. Aren't we? We're waiting. We're longing for God's creation to come back to the pristine reality of its original order. This pain, this ongoing groaning, the frustration, the impatience, the bondage to decay, which creation now experiences, will never be eliminated by Greenpeace or the environmentalists. Reduction in industrial gases? No. None of that will accelerate the return of paradise lost. The whole creation is awaiting Jesus' restoration of all things. Of all things. What I am saying is that the curse is not the end, however except for all who refuse the rule of Christ as creator and savior. Jesus in the garden issued one other curse with which with which a promise was attached to the serpent Satan the instigator of Adam's rebellion God said because you have done this Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, offspring of the woman, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Galatians 3, 14 and 15. The battle's not over. It's just in its ongoing way. There's no doubt either as to the outcome. John in the Revelation paints the scene for us. He writes, the great dragon was hurled down. Hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels along with him. Genesis, or Revelation 12, verse 9. In other words, <laughs> there was no ascending the throne of God as he planned. There was no overpowering the Most High. There was no victory in his proud boast. I will, I will, I will, I will. And God said, uh, no you won't. Instead, John heard this proclamation from heaven's shore. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Revelation 12, verse 10 and 11. The curse is not the end. The curse is not the end. How so? Well, because the seed of the woman wins. That's how so. Satan was told in no uncertain terms that there would be a day of reckoning despite his seeming success. He had lied to Eve and she was deceived, the scripture says. He had used Eve to entice Adam to follow her lead and he did. So both of them fell prey to Satan's temptation and lies they renounced God. They opted for their own sinful choice. And as a result of each of, the, uh, each of this, both sexes died spiritually that day and they were cursed. Life went from being beautiful to being horrible. Goodness turned to bad. Righteousness was replaced by evil. And the entire human race reaped what Adam and Eve had sown and has been doing so ever since. But embedded within the curse, embedded within the curse that Jesus pronounced on Satan, the Creator made this promise about the seed of the woman that was to come. 
five little words. He will crush your head. He will crush your head. <laughs> we all know, do we not, that the only way to kill a snake is to crush its head. If you don't do that, a tailless snake will still be able to bite you with its deadly fangs. Right? I've killed a few snakes in my <laughs> days. If you whack off the tail and say, oh, I got him. I hit him with the shovel and he's a goner. If you think that's true, you better watch out because the head with the fangs are coming at you. Tailless snake or no. But I want you to observe with Christ, this is a personal battle. Jesus admits of Satan, you will strike his heel. You'll do, you, do, you will do that to the Christ. You will strike his heel. There was some form of successful evil that was done there. You will strike his heel, no doubt, referring to the intrigue, the lies, the manipulation of the leaders in Jesus' day who plotted his crucifixion and were successful in implementing it. They were successful. Let me read it for you. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, yes, you, with the help of wicked hands, put him to death. You were successful. You put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Acts 2, verse 23. Strike one for the devil. <laughs> he lashed out with his fangs. He caught Jesus in the heel. And the cross was meant to be the end of it all. Jesus dead. Ha ha. Satan wins. Satan wins. But there's another part of the promise. He, the seed of the woman, will crush your head. Hmm. It's personal. It wasn't a stone or a club taken to the serpent's head. A hatchet, no, no. The very heel of the Creator, Savior, crushed him. And while there was pain and suffering to the cross, the cross was not the end of Christ. but of the serpent's damning influence on the race. Paul puts it this way, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that were against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away 
nailing it to his cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Colossians 2, verse 13. In other words, the cross paid the debt of sin for all who trusted in Jesus at the same time it put the final nail in Satan's coffin. And you can be sure he wasn't thinking of that as he tried to strike Christ and send him to his death. The seed of the woman did Satan in. I love it. The seed of the woman did him in. Eve is exonerated. Adam named her Eve because she was to become the mother of all the living, the scripture says. He's exhibiting his faith in God in how he names his wife. Genesis 3.20. Paul puts it this way, when the time had fully come, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. Oh, I love it. The deceived woman has defeated the deceiver. Think about it. The creator has redeemed back his lost people. John puts it this way, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time and time and half time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away in the torrent. But the earth helped her by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 12, 13. If I know why you have trouble, why I have trouble, we are the rest of the woman's offspring that Satan continues to pursue, pursue, pursue. But what happened? God opened cavity and swallowed the river that was meant to drown out the river, the woman and her offspring. The creator is also the savior. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those 
who all of their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2, 14, and set through and following. Jesus didn't come as an angel. He came as a descendant of Abraham. Abraham, who believed and trusted God when all the society of his day did not. The work of Jesus is the creator winning back his lost people. Therefore, writes Paul, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message, the message of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 and following. What's the message of reconciliation? It's the great news. It's the good news. It's the gospel. Come to Christ through repentance and faith. And if you do, that ends the hostility against the creator so that he can say there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's you and me this morning if we are people of faith. Because he is the offended creator has made peace through the cross of Christ. He did it. We will all appear before the judgment seat of who? Christ. What does the scripture say? Every knee shall bow before him and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Yes, but we've already been there and done that. Right? So judgment day is emancipation day for us. It's vindication day for us. We come before the judge not to be judged and condemned, but be to be exonerated. My blood covers Fred's sin, George's sin, Dan's sin, Phil's sin, Ken's sin, the blood of Christ. We sing it in our hymn. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. It isn't Christ plus. It isn't Christ and, and, and your portion. Well, I had to believe, I hear people say, yeah. But faith is the gift of God. The faith that you have to sit on a chair that supports you is carnal, fleshly faith. It's more knowledge than faith because you've sat on a hundred chairs a hundred times. But saving faith is the gift of God. And no one believes in God and his word except those that God bestows his grace to. Praise him this morning. Amen.
We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and every knee will bow and confess that the one we call Lord is, in fact, Lord. I can't wait. I'm not worried about me being vindicated. I want Christ being vindicated with all the naysayers that's part of our culture. All the people that are thumbs down on Jesus as the only way of salvation. They will have to eat their words in the day of judgment. I pray you won't be among them. I pray that God will grant you faith today to believe in the Christ of tomorrow. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Give us a heart to believe it and to act upon it. There are many religions in the world, hundreds of religions in the world. But if they don't have Christ as the alone Savior, they are all false. They are all inventions of the evil one. They are all lies and deceptions. And I pray that you will defeat them, beginning with our own hearts. Help us to see that Christ is the beautiful and the sole Savior of sinners. That's why he came. It would take a sinless man to save sinners. We're not sinless, never have been. But Christ was that sinless one who willingly gave of himself to pay for something he never did. And because of his sinless character, God the Father accepted his payment for all who will trust in Jesus. Honor yourself this day, we pray, O Lord. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal, number 278. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion city of our God. Yeah, well, we're the Zion city. That's who we are if we know Christ as Savior. Shall we stand together?
there's a major storm heading our way today. Is that right? Anyway, we're not having a service tonight. That's not because of the storm. It's because of me wearing out. <laughs> so I hope you're bearing with me. Um, I'm pretty well beat by just one service for me on a Sunday. So I'm thankful for the ability to still preach, even if I do have to sit down to do it. And I just hope you will take that into account. Uh, on Wednesday night, I remind everybody, is the annual business meeting for the church. There will be reports. If you've never come to an annual business meeting, they are quite interesting because we hear from uh, the website, we hear from the uh, various committees that work in the church, we hear from the Sunday School Superintendent, We on and on it goes. And if you say, well, what in the world is Thornville Church doing all year long? We will tell you on Wednesday night what has been accomplished and what is ongoing. And there's some drawings on the, uh, these are proposed things. So you might want to look at those before Wednesday night. We are proposing the construction of a portico off of the back of the building that will extend out over into the parking area. You'll be able to drive in with your car in snow and mud and all that drop your passengers off in safety and and then park your car and, and come in. And we think that that will be a great plus. Uh, it, it's not the same as having a garage, but it's the next best thing because it should keep the mud and the rain and the snow and all that further out and allow us to be able to help out in terms of getting our people in the building safely. So the Lord bless you. Have a good day this afternoon. Watch out for that storm, and we are dismissed.